Hebrews 9, 16 to 28. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is still alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not, only, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Our loving Heavenly Father, thank you for what you have been speaking to us so far in this service, but through what you've been saying to us uh, through your word, through this wonderful book of Hebrews. Uh, Father, as we come to today's passage, uh, help us uh, to hear from you. Uh, speak to us in your mercy, we pray. Encourage us, challenge us, help us build one another up, and keep us pointing to Jesus Christ and your word, we pray. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you will know that we are in this section of Hebrews chapter 7 to 10, uh, where the writer is looking at the old and showing us how Jesus is better. In chapter 7, we thought of the better priest. In chapter 8, we saw the better covenant. And last week in chapter 9, we started thinking about the better sacrifice. Remember, you can always catch up online if you've missed uh, any of these or you want to re-listen. But last week, we looked at the tabernacle. And we saw that the tabernacle was both a place of problem, but also a place of promise. Problem that it showed how hard it was for us to approach a wonderful, holy God because of how sinful we are but also promise that it was a picture pointing forward to a time when those barriers would be broke down, where we could know peace with God and togetherness with him. And within that, we saw that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was limited in that it was both temporary 
and it dealt with the outward. But verse 11 of chapter 9, we saw that when Jesus Christ came, he changed everything. He himself is our better sacrifice. And in him we can know eternal redemption, purification, and liberation. hope you remember those words, uh, the meanings we were thinking of them last week. Well, we'll continue to think about that this morning. But what we didn't talk about much last week, for a very good reason that the little ones were in with us, is blood. We didn't mention blood much. But you can't ignore it, because it's everywhere in this chapter. Verse 6 of our passage, we're told that the priest doesn't go into the holy place without blood. Whereas Jesus' offering is not the blood of goats and calves, verse 12, but his own blood. Verse 13, we read more of the blood of goats and bulls. And verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ purify us? In today's section that Ian read, verse 18, the first covenant is inaugurated with blood. Verse 19, the blood of calves and goats again. And verse 20, the blood of the covenant and sprinkling of blood everywhere, and so on and so on. We read a lot about blood in the book of Hebrews. Actually, it's only Leviticus and Ezekiel in the whole Bible that talks more about blood than the book of Hebrews. The Bible is a book full of blood. 382 mentions of blood in that Bible version that we use in the church there. And as Christians, we talk about blood a lot. We sing about blood a lot, don't we? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? And one of my favorites, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. I love that hymn. But as we sing these words, and as we talk about blood, do we see it for what it was, for what it is? Or have we become a little desensitized to it? Because blood is an awful sight. If you're into your true crime documentaries, they're all the rage now, aren't they? What they always say, those on the first on the scene of these brutal crimes, what they always say they notice is the blood. The stench of it. The stain of it. The splatter. The sheer horror of it. And often the way they catch a killer in these circumstances is because of the blood. Because as much as, you know, the clever criminal tries to clean up after themselves and think they've done it, well, no, the blood goes everywhere. It's awful. And yet I'm not saying we shouldn't sing these wonderful songs about the blood of Jesus. No, what the writer does in this section we're reading is show us the necessity of the blood shows us why a sacrifice was needed and why it needed to be a blood one. 
I'd like to use these two examples in the passage we read, two pictures to help us see this. And the first is a legal example. If you've got your Bibles open, in verse 15, when talking about the covenant, the writer of Hebrews introduces the word inheritance. And he goes on to give an example of a will. Now, the clever wordplay here is lost on us uh, because in English we have two separate words for covenant and will. Remember, we said this guy has got such a grip on the Greek language. Well, in the Greek, those two words are the same. Covenant and will. So he's flipped between the two meanings here, saying, think about this covenant, this promise contract we've been talking about. Think about it in terms of a will. And the concept of a will is still the same for us today. A benefactor promises a legacy or an inheritance to a beneficiary which they receive upon the death of that benefactor. One benefactor who wrote a will was Ben Rhea. You might not have heard of him. He was an antiques expert. Uh, and he had a legacy. After all his antiques dealing, he had a legacy, an inheritance left of $12.5 million at the end of his life. Not bad. Who was the great beneficiary of Ben Rhea's will? Blackie. Blackie the cat inherited $12.5 million. And you've got a lot of these stories. There's one on uh, Netflix at the moment of a dog who inherited a grand estate. Benefactors, beneficiaries, and legacies. So what does this will look like that the writer is telling us about? Who is the benefactor? Who is the one? Verse 15, we're told that it is Jesus. Jesus, the mediator. The one who comes to make peace between us and God. Jesus, God with us. All these wonderful things that we've been reminded about in this book up to this point. Jesus, the Son, the one before all things, the one who's over all things, our King and Priest. He is the benefactor of this will. So what do the beneficiaries of the will? Verse 15, those who are called, we're told. But also called from those who have committed transgression, committed under the first covenant. Who are the beneficiaries of this will? Those who are called, those who are sinners. Those who are rebellious, undeserving people but those who share in this heavenly calling we've been talking about since chapter 3. Not because of who they are or what they have done, but because of the mercy of God. 
the beneficiary those who are called. So what is the legacy again in verse 15? The promised eternal inheritance. An inheritance certain in its promise. I suppose a promise is only as good as the promiser, isn't it? If I told you that I had left you $12.5 million in my will, then you'd say, well, that's nice, James, but I'm not sure you'd believe it if it was true, and you would also say that it was quite clear that actually you don't have $12.5 million, James, unless I'd got a cat in the last few weeks. <laughs> so... A nice thought, but you wouldn't value the promise I was giving you because of the promise of it had come from. But we are told this promised eternal inheritance is promised and it is certain in its promise. The writer has been reminding us up until this point that the promises we've heard are from God, who is infinite in resource and infinite in love. And he does not lie. He cannot break his promises, we read in chapter 6. So we have a promised inheritance from a promiser who is rich beyond our dreams and cannot lie. An inheritance certain in its promise and eternal in its nature. Well, what does that mean, eternal in its nature? Well, and perhaps we talk about eternity, our mind, uh, eternal, our mind goes straight to eternity. I did it right there. <laughs> Future promises of ultimate rest to come that we have talked about in this passage. It's true and clearly a theme, and the writer will get there before this chapter's out even again. But in the context of what he's been saying, eternal is talking about the once and for allness of this inheritance. That this inheritance is fixed. That it does not pass. It does not run out. That what we inherit is forever. But an inheritance we know now forever. Because surely in the context of this passage, the inheritance he is talking about is primarily the forgiveness of sins and peace with God. That does lead to a forever future with him, but also an inheritance we know now, we can know now, friendship with God, peace with God, access to God, sin and guilt taken away. Remember, the writer is still comparing this with the temporiness of the sacrificial system of the old that ultimately couldn't remove sin and guilt. But this promised eternal inheritance that will last forever, that is true and will not fade. And that's all wonderful stuff. But here is the picture of the, of the will. Verse 17. Without death, there is no inheritance. There's a promise, but the legacy doesn't come into fruition until the benefactor dies. In death, 
the promise becomes a reality. Blackie the cat had a promised inheritance, but before Rhea died, he was just a normal black cat. After he died, he was a normal black cat with with an estate of $12.5 million. In death, the promise becomes reality. And that is the gospel. That is what the writer has been saying, and that is what we rejoice in this morning, that Jesus Christ willingly sacrificed himself, that he died on a cross to secure us eternal redemption. He died to save us. He gave his life so that we could have it all. This promised eternal inheritance. Without death, there is no inheritance. And that's why Jesus Christ willingly sacrificed himself. But even after all we've read, you and maybe these original writers might still be saying, well, that's good and great. But still asking, why then? Why was the death of Jesus Christ a necessity? Could not have God just done all that anyway without Jesus having to die? Could God just have ignored sin? Could he have just brushed it under the carpet and made peace with us anyway? Wouldn't a loving God do that? Well, we could debate if that's true, if it is in fact love to ignore wrongdoing. If as a father I left my children carry on in evil, am I being a loving father? I don't think so. But even before we get to that argument, we'd have another question to ask and ask, is it fair? In a world obsessed with fairness, would it be justice to let wrong go unpunished? And if we were honest, we would have to say no. Because God is loving, but he is also just. And justice demands that the price for sin is paid. And we saw back in chapter 6 that God is not unjust. God is love, but God is justice. So to turn a blind eye to sin, but if he did that, he would no longer be God. It would be impossible. So yes, sin needed to be dealt with. So we move to the second picture in this section and a more familiar theme. We are back to the tabernacle and the sacrificial system. Verse 18, even Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. And he goes on to tell of how the blood of calves and goats was taken and it was sprinkled on the, go- on the book. That the blood was sprinkled on the people. The blood was sprinkled on the tent. And the blood was sprinkled all over the vessels. 
And like we started by saying, let's not be desensitized to this. This is a horrific picture. Blood all over the place. The priest himself covered in the blood from sprinkling it around. The floors covered with blood. The people, as they look at each other, with blood on them. This is not a picture you put on a postcard. It's horrific. But the message of this, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It's a horrific picture. And it needs to be. Because it shows the seriousness of sin. You think sin is just something that can be forgotten? You think sin is something that can be trifled with? Look at this scene. Sacrifice is not pretty. It is messy. Because sin is messy and it is serious. And it's costly. The first covenant was inaugurated with blood, we're told. Inaugurated there means begun or introduced. The covenant was introduced with blood. Without blood, there was no covenant. With sacrifice is the understanding that runs through the covenant. It began with it, but it is understood in sacrifice. There is no understanding of anything that was going on here in this old covenant without blood, without sacrifice. And it was a biblical picture from the beginning. Cast your mind back to when we were in Genesis. Remember Adam in the garden. Genesis 3, that first sin, that first human rebellion against God. And when Adam realized what they had done, it, we're told that they were ashamed and they felt guilty and Adam and Eve hid because they saw that they were naked. And what did they try to do? They tried to cover themselves with leaves. They sewed plants and fig leaves together to try and cover their shame. But it was no good. And God came and he made for them garments of animal skin to cover them. Right from their start to cover their shame, there needed to be death and blood. Right from the very beginning, the picture there and the picture here is that the wages of sin is death. Sin is serious. And it's costly. And if we diminish either the holiness of God and the seriousness of sin, then we ignore the cost. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And that's what the writer shows us, why it was necessary for Jesus to come Verse 23, because we needed a better sacrifice than these. Not the blood of goats or bulls, but of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus who sacrificed himself once 
to put away sin, to conquer it fully, and to pay that great cost. See, what we need to see here this morning is that the bad news, the bad news is really bad. Sin is serious. Sin is costly and it leads to death. The bad news of the gospel is so bad. But then the good news is no comparison to that. The good news is so wonderful. The bad news says sin is serious, costly, and leads to death. But the good news says that Jesus Christ willingly gave himself so that I could know forgiveness of sin and I could know peace with God. For God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him should not die but should receive eternal life. You see, and that's how a Christian who knows and has seen this and has been saved can sing with joy that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The blood is a horrific picture, but it shows the wonder, the love of God, the lengths to which Jesus would go to pay this great cost and sacrifice himself for us. As we come to finish this section today, I want us to remember once more why the author of the Hebrews was writing this letter. Remember, he was writing to a people under persecution. People who were finding it tough and who we believe it was going to get a lot tougher for. And in the midst of this hardship, he was charging them, do not fall away. Don't go back. Keep on going. Why? Because Jesus Christ is better. And it's all about him. And how do these things we've been thinking about help those struggling first readers? And how do they encourage us still today? Because what we've been talking about is everything. This is the Christian hope. This is our hope, and it's all in Jesus Christ. You see, what we have been shown is that as Christians, we can have hope in the past, hope in what has gone, because Jesus Christ appeared. The priesthood, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the covenant, the prophets, and all that went before well, they were good, but they were pointing forward to something better, pointing forward to God's plan of salvation through his son, and Jesus Christ came. And we celebrate and remember that first advent when Jesus Christ came and willingly went to the cross to take the punishment for my sin, the blood of the covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. 
It's not about who I am now or what I do, but all about who he is and what he did. Redemption, purification, and liberation can be mine because of the cross. We hope in the past, but we now have hope in the present for now, because Jesus appears. Where, as he told us, he appears, our great priest king is now in heaven before the throne of God for us. He is there now interceding for me. If you are Jesus's, he now represents you in heaven. The perfect representation, guaranteeing our acceptance before the Father. Knowing we can now boldly come into the presence of God because Jesus has gone before us. The assurance of our salvation, not because of me, but because of him. We have hope in the past because Jesus appeared. We have hope in the present because Jesus appears now. And we have hope in the future. He is our future hope. Verse 27 in our passage, Jesus died once and so everyone else will. It is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. It's not a very trendy thing to talk about, but it's true. The Bible teaches it. We will all die and we will all face judgment. And for those who are not trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, for them, the wages of sin is still death. but not for those who are trusting in Jesus Christ. Our hope for the future is that Jesus will appear. He has appeared, he is currently appearing, and he will appear. The second advent, and the author tells us, not to deal with sin that time. Though he's already done that on the cross. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He's coming back to take his own to him. Look to Jesus. That's what the author says. He is your past hope, your current, your present hope, and your future. And the message is still the same for us today. Whatever you have done, Jesus Christ has come. And he went to the cross for you so that you could know forgiveness of sins. Whatever you are going through at the moment, he is interceding for you right now in the throne room of God. And whatever you faces you, whatever you fear, Jesus is coming back. And he'll make all things right. And if you are his, you will be with him forever. He's our better 
priest. He's the better, brings a better covenant. He is our better sacrifice. The writer says it's all about Jesus. Keep looking to him. Jesus Christ is better. Let's take a minute to... Respond and perhaps you again have seen this, the horrificness of this image of blood. Let's again reflect on the seriousness and costliness of sin. But if you are saved, if you are trusting Jesus Christ, then you can rejoice in that picture, in the blood of Jesus Christ shed for you, the blood of the new covenant given for the forgiveness of sins. And perhaps even this morning, God is prompting you and saying that you haven't responded. And perhaps that blood is still a horrific picture and has no good in your mind yet. But the Bible says it was given. Jesus Christ died so that you could know forgiveness. You can respond to him this morning. Seek forgiveness of sins. Come to the Lord Jesus. He says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on him this morning, and you too can sing those wonderful words to be washed in the blood of the Lamb, to know sins forgiven and peace with God.